Good morning. Our reading this morning is taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and that would be on page 976 in the black Bibles, which you can get the bookcase over in the back corner there. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The word of the Lord. So we have been in the book of Ephesians. We're just hanging out, kind of circling above these verses like an airplane that's been stalling, but it's a good stall. It's a good place to be. And we are continuing that, and we are really going to dive deep this morning in a way that we haven't done before, I don't think, at Grace Point. Uh, And so to do that, in order to do that, in order to see what he needs us to see, let's pray together. God, thank you for your abundant grace. You have drawn us out by your mercy and into marvelous light into the marvelous light of relationship with you. We are seeking now to walk in obedience, and we do so by looking to your word. As the Spirit is residing with us, he is longing for us to see what you would have us to see, and that we would ultimately come to Jesus Christ and know him as Lord and Savior a little bit deeper today. God, as we approach some deep things, some hard things, some things that our intention We ask for your blessing this morning. We ask for joy this morning. As we approach deep theological waters, give us great gladness. Because we know that in so doing, we will come before you to worship you where you are. You are God, we are not. You are Savior, we are not. May that be the proclamation of our heart. May that be where we live this morning as we approach the scriptures today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't go on boats. Nope. Not a boat guy. Not going to ever be a boat owner. Unless they're really, really big. That's probably not going to happen either. Never going to own a really, really big boat. I I will occasionally go on a ferry. I'm from Washington State and in the Puget Sound there. In order to get from point A to point B, often within the Puget Sound, you can jump on a ferry. There are these massive boats where you drive your car on it. They put hundreds of cars on these things. I think they have one in Martha's Vineyard too. Well, these are a, a pretty regular form of transportation there. So I'll do that once in a while to get down to my grandparents' cabin at the, at the south end of the Puget Sound. But I don't like to, and even in a huge boat, if there's even a little bit of movement... You can just watch me turn a shade of green. I do not like boats. I get sick on boats. Ask me sometime about our honeymoon and a seven-hour boat ride that we decided to take out into the Pacific Ocean. Sometimes I feel like I'm still on that boat. I don't like boats. Maybe you don't either. I bet none of you like to go really far out and a boat, into waters that are dark, that are churning, maybe where there's a storm. But sometimes you have to. Sometimes you've got to go out. The sea calls us to explore, to get from one place to another. And then sometimes you have to go deep, not just out, but down. 
Sometimes there is no other way. So when we started this series in Ephesians, I knew that we would quickly hit the topics of election and predestination. And these are deep things. So one path would have been just to kind of simply kind of ride along the shore and, and we can see them out and from the distance and we're riding along close to the shore. We see them, they're there. Nice, okay, we can keep on going. Like when we went and saw the Statue of Liberty for the first time in New York, you go to the end of Manhattan and you can see it right there. It's, it's there. But it does call you out, doesn't it? It says, come and see me. See me up close. And so you get on a boat and you head out and you see the Statue of Liberty. And it's huge and massive and fascinating. We could have done that. We could have stayed back and seen election and predestination from far away. But I didn't want to do that. Sometimes we need to get closer. We need to get deeper. And so that's what we're going to do today. We want to look more deeply into election and predestination. And I want to press even where faithful Christians, Christian brothers and sisters, disagree. But I don't want to just look at it for its sake alone. We're not going to spend the whole time there. It's just going to be point number two. I want to use this topic as a, as a way, kind of a, 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 a blueprint for how we approach these things as a community, as a body of Christ together. How do we hold theological tension in our hearts? How do we hold to theological tension with each other inside of the church? How even do we hold to theological tension with God himself? So that is where we are headed this morning. We're going to ride out as the first point. We are riding out into the water, into the deep, dark waters. Verse 4, Ephesians 1, verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. These are massive truths. These are massive truths. Before the foundation of the world, before stars and planets and space-time and black matter and quarks and black holes, before it all, God. God. And he was doing something almost incomprehensible to us. He was saving us before we were created, before we were born, before we were a twinkle in our parents' eyes, God set his saving love on his people, on his children. Before we had the opportunity to trust him, before we sinned, before we were born into sin, he set, his, he set us aside for saving, for redemption, for love. How did he do it? Chose us. Or as verse 5 says, in one of the most theologically theological words of all time, he predestined us. Predestination. Gives people the chills when they ever say that. Predestination. What does it mean? Paul means that according to the purpose of his will, God predestined us to adoption. What does that mean? It's a it's a word that's lingering there. God chose us before the foundations of the world. It is a massive truth that stands before us 
What? How are we to make sense of this? But it is a lingering question for us. And there are others within the church. This is not just the only one, right? There are other things that we approach that we have to tackle as Christians, as people within a church, as children of the living God that are hard, that are deep. Studying the deeper, harder things of theology of God, listen, it is not easy. It is often like riding out into the ocean. Some people, they live for it, and we know that. Some people live for riding out into the ocean, fishermen, boat captains, just simply sailors who love to sail. But then there are people like me, maybe you, who get sick just simply standing on a floating dock. The further out I go, though, the further out maybe you go, the worse it gets. The seas get choppier, the waves bigger. Studying theology is often like that. Theo, God, ology, the study of, the study of God. Some people live for it. There is no going out too far or too deep for them. But lots of us are like, not like that. Get too deep, get too far out, and we start getting queasy. And then we start saying things like this. Theology is for pastors, for scholars. I don't like unresolved tension. I really hate debating within the church. Or maybe this. Maybe this is something you have said to yourself. Paul is too hard to understand, so I'd like to just skip over this stuff and get to the really good stuff. So listen, that is something that people have been saying from the beginning. People have been saying that about Paul ever since he started putting pen to paper. We are not the first to think that. In Peter's second letter, he brings up Paul himself. And he says, amazingly, he goes, listen, he's not the easiest read. He acknowledges that Paul's learning, his theology, is not for the faint of heart. Listen to it, 2 Peter 3.16. There are some things in Paul's teachings that are hard to understand. Yes, amen. When I first started doing ministry, I was trying to lead Bible studies as best I could, and I decided to tackle the book of Romans in a small group. It was not a good idea. One of the members came to me, and he said, listen, I like Paul. He's a good guy. I like some of the stuff he says, but some of the stuff is impossible to understand. And I do not think God really cares if I learn about this. I know the gospel. I know what Jesus said, and I think that's good enough. Now, I don't know what you would have said or I would have said, but I do know what Peter would have said. He agreed. Paul is hard to understand. But he was not okay with skipping the harder, deeper teachings of this man. Let's keep reading that verse. There are some things in Paul's teaching that are hard to understand. And he says this, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Yes, Paul is deep. He is hard even. It's hard to understand him. But many in the church were taking this hardness and they were twisting it. They were staying back and they were saying, oh, I think I know what that means. And then they were adding their own meaning without looking deeply into it. They are twisting it to their destruction, Peter says. But it's amazing, he doesn't just say Paul, does he? He says other scriptures too. So this is not just a Paul thing. 
all the scriptures, you can look at them and you can go, no, 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 those are not for me. Those are too difficult. But then you get into trouble. Unless you undertake to, like, take the time to understand, to work, to collaborate with others, to give it effort, unless you dive deep, unless you grasp what he is saying, Paul, Peter is saying, you could possibly twist the very words of God, the teachings of God. And so Peter gives us a very simple solution. Knowledge. Growing in knowledge. This is what verse 17 says right after 16. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is he saying? Wade out into the deep end. Ride out into choppy, dark, enigmatic waters. Don't be afraid. Look, learn, learn so that you may not be swept away. I think everyone probably here has has built a piece of Ikea furniture. Raise your hand if you have. Ikea furniture, yeah, a lot of people. Have you ever tried to do it without the instructions? I mean, the instructions are bad enough as they are, right? There's no words. It's just happy people putting together furniture that's actually impossible to put together. Well, what if you lose the instructions and then you try to put it together? You're, you're like, I can do this. Easy. I can figure this out. And then three hours later, three days later, you got it all put together. You've got the bookcase there and your wife comes in and says, it was supposed to be a bed. Even worse, you're missing pieces. That's the worst. The little piece there, little piece there. You don't want to drive an hour and a half all the way down to, to Ikea to pick it, to pick the stuff back up. And so maybe you build it anyway. You just leave those pieces out, a piece here or there. How could that hurt? And it's your kid's bunk bed. This bunk bed is safe, I'm sure. And you know in the back of your mind, this is not safe. This is not complete. I think that Peter's point is simply that you cannot avoid the deeper, harder things of God. You can't avoid the deeper aspects, the more difficult aspects of theology. You can't just throw those parts out. Your faith must be grounded and deeply rooted and at some level be complete. I don't mean that you'll know everything. No scholar even knows everything, but that you are willing to approach the scriptures with humility. In the parable, parable of the sower, Jesus says that the seed that is sown on rocky soil is not able to grow deeply and it is catastrophic. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Falls away. Sounds a lot like Peter. Carried away. Lost to destruction. The seed deeply planted is the one that is growing in knowledge. Not just experience. The seed deeply planted is the one that is growing in knowledge. Not just Christian experience. But we don't just do this to not be carried away. I think that we do this for joy. 
We do this for joy. There is joy to be unearthed when you dig deeply into the Word in Paul and other places. You do not need to be afraid of deep, be deep study. You can cultivate this in your heart and your life. And I do not think that you will regret it. And this is because when you dig deep, you are coming into contact with the living God. The Bible is not a manual to help you learn how to use Microsoft Word. The Bible is the Word of God carried along by the Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles and kings meant to put you into contact. Jesus, with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. Listen, these words in Ephesians and elsewhere, they are not meant to give you a headache, but heart joy. Even Paul himself approached this. He wrote some of the most beautifully complex, deep, rich theology the world has ever seen, especially in Romans. But at the end of Romans, as he gets to the end of it, he's he's written all this out as the Holy Spirit had given it to him. He knew that he was just scratching the surface. And one of my favorite verses, Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Ride out. Do not be afraid. Ride out into the deeper, darker waters. Second point, diving deep. Diving deep. Election. Predestination. It's right there. For us to see, read, hopefully understand at some level. What does it mean when God says that he chose us before the foundation of the world for holiness and blamelessness? What does it mean when he says that he predestined us for adoption as sons? Now, we're going to do some diving right now. Now, we can only scratch the surface, as you can imagine. Just the very nature of the sermon means that we can't really go as far as we would like to, but we are going to hit some stuff. We're going to approach those things together. So what does it mean for God to choose? In one sense, it, it means what it sounds like. Before God created the universe, he saw into the future He saw his people, his children, and he said, I'm going to save them. I will choose them out for salvation. Predestined, predestination is a similar word, and it means like it sounds. God destined us beforehand, before there was anything. He destined those who would gain salvation. Now, actually, every Christian should agree at that point. Apart from the choosing and predetermining of God, we would be lost. Apart from God's intervening love, we would not have salvation today. Paul gives us more details in Romans 8, 28. You've heard this before. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now listen, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now verse 30 says this, And those whom he predestined, he also glorified. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What does that mean? Just base level. God and salvation, they are his. Salvation is of the Lord. That is Paul's point in Ephesians and Romans 
Salvation is of God. God foreknew us. He saw us in in the future and he knew us before we were even created. He predestined us. He set us apart for salvation before time began. In his foreknowledge and predestination, he intended to save us. How? By calling us. He called us with the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And for those who responded to the call, he would justify. He gave us the perfect sinless record of Jesus, imputing to us the righteousness of Jesus. And then he will glorify us. Someday he will make us like Christ where we will be given perfect resurrection bodies. Choosing. Predestining. Underlying point is simply that God is the primary agent in salvation. Salvation, Paul is saying, is mainly God's. Yes, we are at some level cooperative in this. We're going to talk about that in a second. But apart from God's intervening grace, we would be lost. What did, what did we say last week? What is the goal of salvation? It is for the praise, to the praise of His glorious grace. The angel said this in, in Revelation 7. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Without the intervening, foreknowing, predestinating, choosing love of God in Christ, we would be lost. Okay, so that's kind of the big top picture, but we need to dive deep. And this is where we're going to encounter a little bit of darkness, a little bit of mystery. When my wife and I went on this boat trip, there was one good part. It was, it was in halfway through, we had we'd traveled all the way out to this They call it the Forbidden Island in Hawaii, outside of Kauai. And then they let us go snorkeling, and it was amazing, just amazing. And I'm out there, and I swim, and I'm kind of putting my face down, and I I go to this part where you look down, and it's probably 100 feet down. But then it gets to this part where there is a shelf. And it's terrifying, because you swim over that, and there is no ground anymore. There is no seabed. Straight down, darkness. And then something started swimming up out of it. <laughs> and it turned out to be a giant stingray. Freaky. Sometimes we have to dive deep into darkness. Or we will not see the bottom. We will not see the seabed beneath. What does it mean when God says that he chose us? Does it mean just to ask some questions that... He chose some and not others. And if so, why? Well, the first answer is, the first question is pretty easy to answer. Yes, God chose some and not others. But the second question, why, is far harder. If you are not the chosen of God, you will not be saved. Why is that? This is dark. This is mysterious. Why would God not choose some and choose others? So this question, as you can imagine, has resulted in in a pretty massive debate throughout the history of the church. Augustine was the first, pretty pretty much the first one to really tackle this. But it's become full circle a million times. And basically two camps have resulted. So we're going to kind of make two different paths here. Two different camps have 
have taken a stab at what they think is going on in the heart of God for the salvation of this people. When Paul says choose, when he says predestined, what is he really talking about? So what I'm going to do is try to explain each as best I can. The first position is unconditional election. Election means choosing. God elected, he chose some for saving faith. The first position is unconditional election. In response to the question, why did God choose some and not others? Why did he not choose everyone? And the answer kind of sounds circular, but it's this. He chose some and not others because he decided it would be so. In other words, there are no external conditions for God's choosing. God chooses. He predestines completely on his own, completely by grace. God's choice is completely of his own volition, completely of his own will, the camp says. So this means, according to this position, that there was nothing in us. There was nothing in us as he foresaw everything, as he saw everything into the future. There was nothing in us that made him to choose us. We met no condition in his heart. We were not good. We did not choose him. God chose us because he chose us. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we are predestined for adoption according to the purpose of his will. That's verse 5. According to the purpose of his will. So the unconditional election camp says that we are not chosen according to some other external factor, to some people's goodness to some people's choice. God chooses us because it pleased him. Now this does not mean that God had no reason to do so. He did not just randomly, arbitrarily choose people. The point is that God did not involve us. Now this also does not mean that we did not also choose him, this camp would say. Our choosing God, our repenting of our sins and trusting on him, it is absolutely necessary for salvation. But we do this only once he has chosen us. We only choose him if he has first chosen us. John said it this way, we love because we, he first loved us. So that is a tiny nutshell of unconditional election. What's the second camp? How else are we to look at this? What's what's the different way, the other way? Well, it's the opposite. It's conditional election. The second position is conditional election. So maybe if you've never heard about this before, even in your mind right now, you are thinking, okay, this unconditional election thing, there's some problems with this. There are some issues with it. If God really chose some and not others for salvation, if he did it unconditionally, if he did it completely of his own volition and will, doesn't this mean that he passed over some people? Passed over some people who had no say in the matter? This is hard to understand, let alone accept. Doesn't God offer salvation freely to all? But then he doesn't give it. He doesn't allow us to choose it. And I think the baseline thing that we would say about this is that it seems, unconditional election seems to undermine the character of God. It contradicts who he is. Especially because by not choosing us, we are still held responsible for our 
sins. And so that's where conditional election comes in, this camp. And they say, okay, listen, we know that, the, that God chooses. We know that Ephesians 1 is there. And we don't just think that it was collective. It wasn't just corporate. It meant individuals as well. And he chose us before the foundation of the world. So election is a real thing. So what's the answer to this? What is their solution? Election is conditional. It is conditional. Before time began, before the foundations of the world, we know that God saw everything. He foreknew. He has foreknowledge. And so he saw things like Satan's fall, man's sin, the coming, dying, and rising of Christ, the proclamation of the gospel. But he saw one other thing. He knew who would choose him. He foreknew it. He knew beforehand what every person would do. Some people, as they came into contact with the gospel, they would humbly repent and turn to him, while others would not. God saw this, the camp says, and they say, I will choose those people. I know what they will do, and so I will choose them now. I will set them aside. Essentially, they are saying, I will choose them because they have chosen me. That is nutshell. Faithful men and women Passionately, God-fearing men and women, scholars, pastors, and lay people have struggled to understand this central doctrine of the church from the very beginning. Paul had heard this before. He was not unaware of this issue. From the very beginning, he knew what the response would be when he started to talk like this. Romans 9 says this, So then God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Those people struggle with this. I struggle with this. Now, I think that as a pastor, as the pastor of this church, I think you should know where I stand. And we can talk more about this. I don't want this to be the last word. I'm not just saying from on high. This is what it is. Far from it. Now, I I do fall in the unconditional election camp. I think it's the the most straightforward reading of the text. But I'm going to put a period there because I want to say this. It's still so mysterious to me. It is still so dark. C.J. Mahaney, a pastor, he says that the second that you start to look into election, you walk into it, you hit your face on mystery. He says you bloody your nose on mystery. And so I just want to end by asking this question. How do we deal with complex, mysterious, tense passage of Scripture, passages of Scripture, theological topics. I say this. First, when we approach these things, we must be humble. If you don't walk up to these things and not be instantly humbled, you're doing it wrong. God is infinitely complex. We must acknowledge that. We should not merely see him as simple, though he is simple. He's not simplistic. He is simple. He is knowable, understandable. We can relate to him. But we must also approach his astounding complexity, his infinite 
wisdom. And often this will only happen as you go out, as you peer into difficult things. One of my favorite passages that gives me a lot of peace is Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. So the things that we absolutely know for certain, those are the things that we need. But how do you know what's secret? Well, you got to go out there. you got to hit the edges of the, the secret stuff. And then when you do, you will be awed. You will feel a sense of wonder, amazement. So the first thing when you come up to tension like this, be amazed. Be humbled. Second, when you're doing theology, it is important often that you hold on to different truths at the same time. Sometimes it may seem contradictory, or at least our intention is important that you hold on to both truths at the same time. There's a theologian named R.B. Kuyper, and he has a really helpful metaphor for this. He says that theology is often like taking a rope and passing it through the ceiling, and above the ceiling is a pulley. And so you have both sides of the rope, two pieces of rope, right? But it's really one. He says that if you grab onto one and you try to hold on to it, You fall straight through. And so you must grab on to both. You must hold simultaneously on to each. There are so many things like that in the scriptures, in theology. For election and predestination, the two things that theologians talk about is God's sovereignty over everything. His sovereignty in salvation. And there's this thing called human responsibility. We are held to account for what we do. No one knows the answer to that question. You must hold on to them simultaneously. There are others, though. What about the Trinity? God's oneness? His threeness? You cannot let go of those. You must hold on to them, even if they do not make sense to you. What about suffering and the sovereignty of God? Suffering is real, and yet God is sovereign. How do I make sense of what I'm going through? You hold on to both. The scriptures teach both. What about the dual natures of Christ? Jesus is both man and God. A hundred percent of each. You hang on to both. You do not let go. Even if they don't make sense to your human mind, you do not let go for nothing. Because to let go, I think, would be to make a shipwreck of your faith. So the second thing, sometimes you just hold on to the truth at the same time. Last thing, we do theology together. We do theology together. And what I mean is that we openly and graciously discuss these things in community. We study deep things with friends, with each other. The deeper that you go, the darker that it gets. And what I have found is that I need the illuminating presence, the knowledge, the studying of other people to help me. I need their perspectives. I need their understandings. I need brothers and sisters to show me things I have never considered. I am always humbled. I am always helped by this. We must do this together. We must do it in unity. But how? That's the last thing I'm going to say this morning. 
If we are to do this together, if we are to approach the deep things of God in a church that is interdenominational, we are non-denominational, we are a lot of people coming together with lots of different backgrounds, lots of different understandings. How do we come together as a people? Well, the only answer is to live by our namesake, to live by grace. If we are going to be free to study and express the deeper, often harder things of God, if we are going to be free to live and teach and even debate a little bit, to build unity without breaking it, then we must begin and we must end with grace. The doctrine of election, more than anything, it makes me grateful. It makes me so grateful. Whatever you think about it, what you can believe is this, that we were chosen when we were totally undeserving. Completely undeserving. And now our only option, our only track in life is humility and gratitude. Even where we disagree, we do so lightly, generously, humbly. And we do this all to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray together. God, you have given us your word, but you never said it was going to be easy. You have given us so many different genres, so many different authors, so many different styles. It's all weaving together. We can see it happening. We know from 30,000 feet away that you are doing something amazing and you have been since the beginning of time. And now we know we are part of it. We are part of this. But we need your help. We begin where we started this morning. That we are living by grace. As we approach difficult things. As we approach you and say, why? Why are you this way? We need your grace. We need your illuminating presence. God, I do pray for unity for this church. My brothers and sisters, they need unity. We need to come together for the sake of the gospel. And so would you help us? God, where we disagree, bring light. Where we debate, bring your healing presence. God, where there is tension among people, where there is frustration, maybe even over theology itself, restore us. And we stand together, O God. Standing together on your revealed word, we will not be moved from it. But may we do so with great joy by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.